Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Spiritual Bypassing and Adulthood on the Path. The talk was given by Deborah Auletta on October 15, 2022, via Zoom. In this talk, Deborah reads from and comments on an article by the French master Arnaud Desjardins, From the Child to the Sage. Key areas of work on the spiritual path that are often avoided are discussed, largely based on Arnaud's teachings and those of his master, Swami Prajnanpad. Deborah considers the perspectives of several authors on the topic of spiritual bypassing and speaks about her experience with her teacher, Lee Lozowick. The presentation ends with a recording of the song, Philosophize. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Deborah Auletta. The name of this talk is Spiritual Bypassing and Adulthood on the Path. This topic is something that is very relevant to my life right now and has been for a very long time. I'm using a lot of different sources tonight. I'm going to be using a lot from Arnaud Desjardins' article from Child to the Sage, which I think is the gold standard of what it is that I want to talk about tonight. It's a unique perspective on true spiritual work. John Wellwood was the man who coined the phrase spiritual bypassing, and we'll get into that in just a little while. Mariana Kaplan wrote an amazing book called Halfway Up the Mountain, The Era of Premature Claims to Enlightenment. That's put out by Home Press. Incredible book and Shadow on the Path, also Home Press. Arnaud Desjardins also has a new book, which is called Ever-Present Peace. I just went to a four-day conference. I'm going to bring some of the things I learned in there about the distorted self and the true self, which has been very helpful to me. And hopefully I can tie all this stuff together. I'm just going to start by reading what... John Wellwood talks about. He said, I started to pay more attention to a disturbing tendency among certain members of spiritual communities. Although many of these spiritual practitioners were doing very good work on themselves, and I bowed to them and respect the work they were doing, some of them seemed to be using meditation or their spiritual involvements to bypass certain kinds of personal, emotional, unfinished business. There is a certain temptation, which I can observe in myself as well, to try to use spiritual practice to rise above difficulties of unresolved personal problems and emotions. Insofar as we want to get away from difficult personal issues and emotions, all that sticky, messy stuff that keeps us rooted, you know, we want to do spiritual practice instead of getting down in the muck. I have come to call this tendency to try to avoid or prematurely transcend basic human needs, feelings, and developmental tasks as spiritual bypassing. Okay. And 
for me, what I've learned when I've been really digging deep into this is that I need to approach this with compassion for myself and for anyone else who is dealing with this. Because I think that probably on some level, we're all dealing with this. I had an interesting conversation the other night and I was really humbled by it because we were talking about an individual who in his own right was a teacher and actually talked about how one needed to examine their shadow, but they had a lifelong tendency of getting very, very close to spiritual traditions. And then at a certain point, because of a very deep childhood wound, pushing that away and rejecting it. And they were never able to resolve that in themselves. And they did amazing things. They did amazing workshops, but they were never able to get to the bottom of that. And now they're in a nursing home mental institution, living out their last days. And people in the room that were talking about it were saying, well, some of us may not be able to get to the bottom of this in this lifetime. And that really humbled me because I was on this thing, yeah, I got to do this. And and maybe we can, and maybe we can't, right? So we've got to approach this with compassion, no judgment. We don't want to weaponize this or anything like that. When you said get to the bottom of this, I'd love to hear more about what you mean by that. I'm going to talk more about that when I am reading from Arnaud Desjardins' article, From Child to the Sage. He says that his teacher, Swami Prajnanpad, says that the ultimate spiritual practice is to become a true adult, to become 100% adult. All of us have things that we're really, really good at, but we can't rest on that. We have to look very, very honestly at our weakest link because if we don't look at our weakest link, it will get us. It will undo us in the end. So does that start to answer the question? Yeah? Okay. This stuff is, it's hard work. Ken Wilber, I don't agree with everything that Ken Wilber says, but he does say that in the spiritual supermarket, there are a lot of things that can be confused with real spiritual work because they can get you to feel real good and work you up into some sort of an ecstatic frenzy. And they can look like a true spiritual experience because they're not in ordinary state. And we have to be able to make the distinction. I was looking around for a long time and I ran into a lot of things that were not that. So anything that seems fun and easy and not challenging, if it's too good to be true, (laughs) it might bear further inspection. So in Mariana's book, I want to read these two quotes. This book is full of amazing quotes. So Lama Thubten Yeshe says, do not have unrealistic expectations. Today, I'm completely negative. Tonight, I meditate. Tomorrow, I'll be completely pure. You cannot purify yourself overnight. Not only are such expectations wrong, they themselves become obstacles. Chogun Trumpa, quote, 
if we have not been able to make a relationship with our suffering, frustrations, and neuroses, the feasibility of transmission is remote, extremely remote, for we have not even made a proper relationship with the most basic level of our experience. So spiritual work is it's intense and it's laborious and it sucks sometimes. You don't want to do it. I'm going to try to speak to you about this from what I understand. My own teacher talks about the need for psychological work, but not overdoing it. John Wellwood talks about needing to get into these things so that you can have a stable foundation, like a stable ego structure. But he also talks about narcissism, where you become so fascinated with all of your stuff. What Lee says is when I began my teaching work, people were having phenomenal experiences, but things weren't changing. Their habits, their neuroses, it became clear that if people didn't work with their psychology, no matter how devoted and sincere they were, they were effectively blocked at a certain stage. If we don't efficiently deal with our psychology, we can forget spiritual work. Not that we can't have experiences, but we will always come down from them. Stuff makes sense to you guys? I'm going to go back here to John Wellwood. So he talks a little bit about spiritual bypassing and how some of us get into it. Some of us get into spiritual schools, especially people who have difficulty making their way through basic developmental stages in life, like earning a living, raising a family, keeping a marriage together, which is something that's becoming increasingly difficult in the 21st century. If you're having trouble becoming an autonomous individual, it would be very easy to fall into a spiritual school as something to save you, right? I had an experience that really changed me when I was 16 years old. Of course, I was on LSD, but it did change me. It was one of these things where, okay, I can keep doing drugs and my life is going to go this way, or I can stop and something else is going to happen. And I completely stopped. I was brought up in a family. They had thrown out religion. They were cynical about religion. And so there was no God in the picture. So there was no leaning into God at all. And all of a sudden, there was God. And it was this amazing thing. But then there was also this amazingly dysfunctional family that I came from. And I looked around for different paths, transcendental meditation, Ananda Marga, all these different things. And I went in, I went out. I was a Sufi for a while. That was strong. I learned all the things I needed to learn in that path. There was something very real about that, but it wasn't me. But I was still really broken. I think there was sincere desire for the truth. And I spent many, many years really broken. And you can do a lot of psychological work and still be really broken and still not get to the bottom of it. So... Many people, they're introduced to spiritual teachings, especially Eastern teachings, from cultures that assume that a person has already passed through basic developmental stages. 
Okay. And Judith Leaf has something really good to say about that here. She suggests that thousands of years before the emergence of the formal field of psychology, there were spiritual teachers who were effectively working with their students to purify those aspects of themselves that later came to be called psychological. Abhidharma, or Buddhist psychology, has been around for over 2,000 years. So teachers were working with their students side by side. It was part of their spiritual practice, an inherent aspect. And Gilles Frasset, who is a student of Arnaud Desjardins, and they, in their school, they do this thing called lyings to really get down to very, very deep levels of where those deep wounds come from. He says, psychological work cannot be separate from spiritual work when one is committed to a spiritual process. It's a unified whole. It's a life affair. You do it all your life. So it's not to figure out every little thing, but just to get a stable structure. That's what we're looking for, is just to have a stable structure so that we're not reacting to everything that's happening to us in our life. If every time something happens or somebody looks at us the wrong way, and we react, then we're thrown off. Our energy is dissipated, and then we have to start over again. Many talks about narcissism, John Wellwood does, and I think this is really important. And this tendency to get overly fascinated or absorbed in your own personal process, delving into emotions, archetypes, dreams, relationships. You can spend your whole life doing that, processing all that rich material. It's like a labyrinth. You get trapped in it. This kind of self-examination is an ultimate journey. You get hooked. You become an emotional junkie and you get hooked on processing all this stuff. We don't want to do that either. And then there's another thing he talks about that a lot of people do who don't even go near spiritual work, which is they just get desensitized. They don't want to feel things. They just want to take it easy. They just want to sink into some groove. They just want to get by with as little challenge as possible. Nobody in this room is like that. Okay. I want to play you this little thing that Ken Wilbur describes. I recorded it off of a YouTube, and I hope the quality of the recording is good enough for you to actually hear it. You have to develop the ego before you can transcend it. So as Jack famously put it, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. Any questions? Anybody have any comments? From the space you're talking, there would be a thing called real spiritual experience and not real spiritual experience. This has been a narrative One, I still don't know what that would be, real or not real. And I'm wondering, what's the usefulness of having an experience of any kind and then saying, well, that was real or that was not real in terms of spiritual experience? So I'm curious about how you're meaning that. Okay. So firstly, I can't say that I know if something is real or not. 
for me, I've had all sorts of experiences, all kinds of different experiences of different types running the range of kind of everything. And right now it seems useful, like the thing I'm working with is to leave it alone. No matter what the experience is, call it spiritual or not spiritual, is to just completely leave this thing alone and just bring presence to whatever that is. But I've kind of given up on the idea of spiritual experience, even that it even exists as a separate thing. I think what I've been referring to is that there is a big spiritual supermarket out there. You know about the spiritual supermarket? And there's lots of things that call themselves spiritual paths. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that a lot of them are not. And they can generate in you a feeling that feels like good or like you're, you're elevated or something's happening. You know, and I don't really know if I know a whole lot about really moving forward on the path. I know people who have moved forward on the path. And I think that there are a lot of things out there that really mislead people. And I think that that is a shame because I think it would be better just to have nothing and just to live your life with integrity. You did a workshop, a four-day workshop. Where would you put that in the category of things that are a distraction or not useful? The workshop that I did, it was about knowing myself enough that I could be grounded and know myself better. So then maybe I could do some spiritual work. Ken Wilbur said there was three things. This is a statement. I have a question that follows. I just want to get this out. There's waking up, but there's also clearing up and growing up. Yeah. Those were his things. Anyway, you were talking about there's lots of things that are questionable. Can you give examples? Yeah. Okay. So there's this thing in California. It's called, probably around here too, but it's called ecstatic dance. People go and there's certain rules and they do this dance. And it actually causes biochemical changes in their body from the way they dance. And they feel ecstasy from doing that. And it's not spiritual work. It is not. I have a really banal example of this. I have these music lyrics. I have to tell you that when I was growing up, my sanctuary was music. That was it. That was what got me through life. So I know that I'm not the only one who did this because the temptations told me about it. The song is called Just My Imagination, Running Away With Me. And it talks about to have a girl like hers, truly a dream come true. Out of all the fellows in the world, she belongs to me but it was just my imagination running away with me. Have you ever had a fantasy about someone and you were so good at it, it felt real. It felt so real, it almost felt like being with that person. 
Now that's really different than actually being with that person. And eventually, unless you wind up being with that person, you're going to come down from that. You're going to crash down from that. So that's like a really mundane example of that. And I think this ecstatic dance, I think a lot of the movements out there that are designed to make me feel better about myself. They're designed to make me feel good, to make me better, to make me co-create. I really want to believe that in general, people want to do good. My take on that is this, uh, which is in disagreement with you, is if I go to spiritual dance, ecstatic dance, it's up to me as an adult, from the baby to the sage, to integrate that and go home and take my experience. But it's up to me as an adult to integrate that as an adult. Yep. I agree with you about that. And I was thinking about that too, because there's a big movement now of using substances, ayahuasca, San Pedro, psilocybin, peyote, and all these things, and having guides. And under the right circumstances, that could help a person forward. But under the wrong circumstances, it could do a lot of harm. So there's a lot of things like that. And I think what you're talking about is a little bit different and is really addressed in this article by Arnaud Desjardins. So what would you say is the essential difference or the essential distinction between real spiritual work and what you're describing? Well, I think that what I'm describing is that it's for me. And real spiritual work is for something greater than myself, something else, in the very simplest terms. You know, um, it's not easy for me to be here talking to you guys tonight. You know, I was in a blues band for 19 and a half years, and that is totally against anything I ever, ever would have done. And I did it because Lee asked me to do it. The reason that I was effective in that role, you know, like I could kind of sing, but the reason I was effective in that position is because it wasn't from my ego that I was doing it. Did that kind of answer your question? Yes. It's not for me. Yeah. It's for something greater than me. Yeah. What would that be? I don't know. For me, the divine. Okay, so I want to get into Arnaud, Arnaud's stuff, because this is radical and amazing and a really different perspective, okay? Because this stuff is the best. Get a hold of this article, From the Child to the Sage. I'm going to read you some passages from this. And the sage is the perfect state of the adult. 100% adult. It is astonishing when one has worked with one's lyings, and that's this process they do in his school, and one digs a little more deeply into the heart of one or another who has had what we call good parents to see that each one of you has been wounded, disappointed, feels something is missing. 
this is not to blame your parents or make them wrong or anything like that, but just to see the reality of it. When we speak of a child, we speak of the parents. Only a few days ago, I quoted Swami's definition of liberation, one of those concise definitions that touched me in the right place every time. He says, quote, to be free is to be free from mommy and daddy. I confess that on first hearing this definition, I refused it, reducing the definition of moksha, meaning supreme metaphysical liberation, to the psychological idea such as this made me react. It forced me to battle with this particular claim of Swamiji. Today, I am convinced of its absolute truth. If you are able to understand that you are more or less childish without taking it as an insult on my part, the path will become very clear to you. As far as I'm concerned, this has been the most effective aspect of Swami Prajnampad's teaching. At 42, I realized I was no more than a child. I am not saying that I was a grown-up acting like a child, but a child was ruling over my heart. This became all the more striking because after having felt lost and weak for so long, paradoxically, now was a time when the conditions of my assertion in life were changing, and I had the means to consider myself adult in almost all the fields of activity that were of interest to me. It is not a case of saying adults behave like children. No, it is much more concrete and precise than that. There is a child laying down the law in the heart of an adult. Does that make sense to anyone? Can anybody resonate with that? When I heard that, I was like, oh, that's what's going on. Jeez. Okay. The goal is non-dependency, autonomy, to find one's own inner strength and inner balance. The goal is to be capable of solitude. This is one of the first criteria. To what extent are you capable of solitude? Wisdom is the ability of being more and more abandoned, more and more betrayed, more and more rejected, and to feel more and more peace, more and more inner security. You know very well that the idea of being betrayed, rejected, criticized, denied is unbearable to you. Dependency on someone or the dependency on others are all marks of childishness. Now, this isn't to say that we should all be alone and not have human contact and all that, but if you feel betrayed and it completely throws you off, that's something to look at. Am I capable of staying alone, feeling alone, or is it unbearable? Alone materially, physically, alone psychologically, nobody agrees with me. Nobody understands me. Do I more or less suffer from it? It will always be more or less. You know, he talks in percentages, like all of us are partly childish and partly adult. He says, if a childish man is in love with a woman and this woman says, tonight I have an appointment, we shall meet up in a week. It is too much to ask of him. And he insists, no, this is not possible. You can easily say no to this family reunion. 
childish, still a child's behavior. Almost all of your behavior, as you well know, is not driven by the necessity of the situation, but by your inner necessities. Your behavior is not a response, it is a reaction. Not an impulse, but a compulsion. So these are the kinds of things that we need to look at. Where are we responding or reacting? And he says, a child lives in emotion. And he's not saying children are bad. He's saying children are supposed to be that way. But adults aren't supposed to be that way. It's normal for a child to not want to wait. It's normal for a child to react to things. But a childishness, you live in reactivity. And an adult doesn't have to do this. A stage doesn't have to do this. Think about Lee and watching him. I watched when something really, really profound happened to him. I'm not going to say what it is, but someone very important to him left. And he went on. He didn't fall apart. I'm sure that impacted him profoundly. But he moved forward. We went to Swamiji to hear him speak about the Vedanta, wisdom, Brahma, Atman. We did not go to him to hear him speak of childishness. But when speaking of childishness, I find myself in the heart of Swamiji's teachings, in remembrance of Swamiji, in communication with Swamiji. Emotion equals childishness, dependency, childishness, the inability to be alone, childishness. The inability to postpone until the next day, childishness. And then he talks about having and being. If you go back to these different themes, you'll be able to see that having is childishness and being is the adult state because a child is dependent. So his imperative need is to have. An adult has less and less need to have and finds increasing joy and fullness and security in being. The child is meant to ask and to receive. The adult is meant to hear the request and to give. Once again, assess your existence according to this criterion. I am 40 or 50 years old. To what extent do I still need people to listen to me, to show interest in me, to be giving toward me? have to have that or you're thrown off balance. Each time you will find having and being at the heart of these questions. There's more here that's really unbelievable. Okay, let's get to it. He says, if you consider yourself to be an adult, you will not understand anything about yourselves and everything about your behavior will remain undiscovered. But if you have the courage to consider yourselves to be children of 30, children of 40, in our cases, 50, 60, 70, children who are company directors, highly positioned bureaucrats, surgeons, children who are lawyers, children who are airplane pilots, you are saved. You can be particularly childish in the relationship with your husband or your wife and less childish in relationship to others in general, in relationship to public opinion and society. 
You can be less childish as regards money in that spending for the sake of appearances is no longer essential. And this is the crux of it. Each one of you must have the courage to look at the areas in which you are the most childish and not only those in which you are just about adult. So all of us have things that were really, we're really good. Yeah, got this. But we can't dwell on that. Again, it's not, ooh, I'm bad, but that's not the thing we need to be really focusing on if we're going to make some progress here. Each one of you must have the courage to look at the areas in which you are most childish and not only in which you are just about adult. We can be utterly under the illusion by considering ourselves just adult because we can boast about a certain success which an adult normally achieves. We'll agree that a 10-year-old does not fly a Boeing jet to Beijing or Tokyo. Consequently, a captain is able to feel assured. It is obvious that I am an adult. We all agree that a child is totally incapable of spending nine or 10 hours next to an operating table to do heart surgery. It is obvious that I am an adult and so on. This is false. You can be a surgeon, do heart transplants, and be childish. You can even be the prime minister or the president of the United States. This was like years ago when he wrote this article. President Nixon was a child, but he was one of two masters governing the world. And what he says is, look for the area in which you are the most childish. Do not blind yourself with other areas of activity in which you are prouder of yourself. No chain is stronger than its weakest link. No human being is stronger than its weakest link. Your greatest weakness shows your greatest childishness. And then this I thought was interesting. When a man's moral, social, and psychological breakdown is necessary to those who have interests that oppose his, his destruction lies in finding his weakest link. That's pure Machiavellian thought, okay? We're not talking about Machiavelli tonight, but that's what that is. But you're not stronger than your weakest link. So you may have 10 things that you're amazing at, but you're only as strong as your weakest link. So you've got to figure out what that is. You've got to be able to look at that honestly. Spiritual teachers, if they haven't strengthened their weakest link, they can do harm. Yes, that is true. They can. And from what you're saying, I can really sense the difference between what you've referred to as real spiritual work and what's often taken as spiritual work. Well, Mariana's book is all about that, premature claims. And also, there's a part in the book that says, if the teacher doesn't have a grounded self, then... They're not going to know how to work with students and students are going to be able to manipulate them. It's just going to be a big mess. I've got this story. No one hear a story? This is Vijay talking. One of the major shocks I faced in the early period of my own involvement in a spiritual school came when a hardworking and highly regarded woman student suddenly decided to leave our community. Isabella had a strong influence on me at the time. 
She had introduced me to many of the basic ideas of spiritual work. I couldn't understand how she could leave. She seemed irrevocably committed to our work and our teacher and held an important post in the spiritual organization. Her powerful presence arose out of a strong practice and undeniable understanding of the teaching. Yet, Isabella had a particular weakness that became more apparent over time. It showed up in a compulsive need for male companionship. Certainly, everyone has a need for relationship, but the desperation Isabella exhibited in this regard grew consistently with a strength that indicated that repressed shadow issues were finally erupting for her. Buried feelings that had been primed through her experience with marriage, motherhood, and then divorce now began to surface with intensity she had never experienced. Several factors heightened her current situation, especially the growing number of her close friends who were becoming involved in relationships with men as her own needs continued to go unsatisfied. Isabella felt there were no options for her, that she was stuck in a lifestyle of emptiness and despair. As no man in the school had been right for her during the entire length of her involvement, the pain that her friends' partnerships brought up for her was overwhelming and the source could no longer be avoided. She wrestled with her dilemma in conversations with her teacher, who repeatedly discouraged her from partnering with the men that she would regularly speak about with him. Even while part of her seemed to realize that she was pushing the river, trying to make the universe conform to her needs rather than surrendering to the flow, she was so preoccupied with filling a hole in herself that she saw her teacher as a denying force. She began to fight with him, even while she realized that it was her cramp, something inside her and not the external situation that was troublesome. Basically, she laughed. This ability to be alone is a hallmark of adulthood. For me, having recently experienced the loss that I've experienced, I'm really thrust into recognition of some childish part of myself that needs some work. Deborah, how do you work with yourself when you see childish emotions in yourself? And you can answer personally, but just in general, what do you do with that? Well, okay. So I've been thinking about this weakest link thing because I don't do very well with childish emotions in myself in general. That's been something for many, many years. But I just did this conference, and in the conference, we spent an entire day looking at our distorted self. And we looked at all the parts of ourselves that basically were what we did to survive. And there are different parts that all of us have. We all have a pleaser, and we all have a critic, and we all have a pusher, and we all have a magical thinker. And we all have a buffer, the thing that wants to watch Netflix all day and eat double pepperoni pizzas, well, the veggie. And we all have the wounded one and the black hole. And there's some other ones in there. The analyzer. My analyzer is not very pathological. It's just kind of up there in the corner. We looked at those and we drew pictures of them. And then we looked at how they were running our lives. And then the following day, we did this integration process of how to get back to what they call your true self. 
And we did these visualizations and these exercises, and we were able to contact something that was our true self. Now, I'm not saying this is spiritual work, it's not, but it's a way to integrate all of those things so you can operate from a different place. And so that, and then thinking about, you've got to look at the weakest link in your chain. So I'm like, what is the weakest link in my chain? I want to know what that is. And yesterday, I got this phone call. And I knew what the weakest link in my chain was. I got off the phone. I was completely thrown off. And the weakest link in my chain is I want to please daddy. Like, that's what it is. And daddy gets projected on certain men. And that's it. That is the weakest thing. Our no talks about audacity with women. Like, that was his. <laughs> I wish that were mine. Audacity with men, you know? <laughs> that's not mine. Mine was like, all of a sudden, I had fallen to pieces. Just this conversation with this person who I love, I'd just fallen to pieces. I can start crying right now, but I'm not going to. And so there I was. Okay, I'm in my pleaser. I'm trying to please this person. And then I'm wounded. Okay, now I'm going into my black hole and I'm going to try to make it better. And instead, I did these things that I learned in this conference. And I was able to just be myself. The pain didn't go away still right there. I can still feel it. It's right there. But I was able to go. I was able to have my day. I was able to give this talk tonight. It seems like being with that, really being willing, yeah, is key. Being with it and then finding whatever way it is that you can come back to center so you can be with it. It's not about pushing it away. It's not about the mea culpa, oh, you know, I'm so bad. Just two weeks ago, if I'd had that phone call, I would have been a big mess. I would have had to call three people and process it. And I don't have to call anybody at all. I was just able to go, okay, yeah, there it is. There's my thing. And he says it can take years to actually get through that. He transformed himself. I don't think I'm going to transform myself in this lifetime, but I'm going to keep working in that direction. I'm going to keep doing the best that I can. As I said in the thing that I wrote, I'm like an imperfect lover of the truth. I want the truth. I do want it. And so you find whatever it is so that you can move forward. Doesn't Arno say, this is possible for you? Yeah, he does say that. He does. Be honest and measure yourself against your greatest weakness. And how liberating is that? What a relief (laughs) to be able to measure yourself against your greatest weakness. We have to make friends with that. We want to push that away. We want to make it wrong. We want to bury it. We don't want to deal with it. And if you don't deal with it, It's going to come and get you. The beginning of transformation into adulthood manifests as the taste for truth. This is our no. 
It comes from within yourself, not from what is opposed upon you from the outside. It is a taste for truth and the love of truth. I'm also impressed by the way he keeps saying, find the courage to face your weakest link. Because when I come up against these things in myself, I tend to not look for the courage. He's encouraging us to find that courage because we are brave. We are adults. We are there. But we're not acting like that. That's not our experience. So we find the courage in ourselves. He says, we can do this. He also says that we're some percentage adult. We have to really look at our weakest link. An adult who does not have any personal taste for the truth is still a childish adult. The beginning of the passagehood from childhood to adulthood happens when this necessity for truth becomes stronger than pretending, stronger than being loved, stronger than everything. I want the truth. It is the promise that one day the adult will exist. Oh my God, he tells these stories about himself that are so amazing. I was 39 when I met Swamiji, and at 42, I could see only one thing, or at least one thing dominated everything else. It was my childishness in the most concrete sense of the word. And he was a famous film producer. He had gone all over the world. He was on national French television once a month with these documentaries. And he says, I will not deny it. He fell in love with a woman, a very famous woman, in fact. She came to Swamiji's ashram, and the first words to come out of Swamiji's mouth were, so you love Arno. Do you know that Arno is a child? This was like a famous movie star. And he's like a famous guy too, right? The poor woman, she thought she had met an adult at long last and she began to feel that she had made a mistake. Do you know that Arno is a child? She replied, I know that, but what is important is that he knows it also. Am I able to put something off until later? Am I impatient or impulsive? Am I afraid of being alone, scared of being abandoned, afraid of not being loved anymore, afraid of being criticized, of being scorned, denied, or rejected? All these things. Then he talks about people say that Jesus said, you have to be like little children. But he's saying there's a difference between being childlike and childish. So don't let that confuse you, okay? And Ramdas also said, be childlike. And then he said, be childlike, not childish. And then Swamiji said, the sage is an enlightened child. He had to take a lot from his teacher. Do you know that Arno is a child? Hearing this said does not make me happy, but I trust Swamiji. The more I access my childishness, the more I admit he is right. I find this to be really exciting. Having and being. Is everything about having or am I willing to be? From what you're saying, it sounds like spiritual bypass. It's about doing any kind of practice and not working on one's childishness is what occurs to me. 
think you can do both. But Arnaud also says, do you really believe that if you do not attempt anything in this domain of looking at your childishness, the visualization of a tantric deity will be of any use to you? A lot of these folks that I read about, they talk about how it's really easier to be in the clouds. Do you have that song? Are we going to be able to hear it? Oh, cool. We're going to hear one of Lee's songs. John Wellwood says, awakening the heart also requires groundedness because without the earth, there would be no compassion. If we are only able to let go, you know, if our only concern is with space or spirit, then we may not be very committed to other sentient beings. We could get carried away with our own liberation and fail to develop compassion for how stuck people are in their karmic patterns. We might try to bypass all the deep pain involved in working through this karma. Compassion develops out of our involvement in the world of form, as well as our sense of the possibility of transcending its limitations. If we are only oriented towards spirit, we tend to get impatient with other people's stuckness. This is really great thing I want to end with about have to be in the darkness and in the light. I'm not much of an upper world person myself, so being in the underworld, not so hard for me. Purification often happens, this is from Mariana's book, through underworld experiences. Though people aspire to the freedom, bliss, and ecstasy of the upper world, they are often unaware of and unprepared to undertake the journey into the underworld. They fail to understand that the dark side is as much a part of enlightenment as the light they so avidly seek. One does not come without the other. And if one refuses the dark, they simultaneously refuse the light. The true nature of enlightenment is the marriage between enlightenment and endarkment. You can't experience the heights of spiritual work unless you are willing to experience the depths. A famous teacher said, there's nothing that happens in your life that is not your path. And that person also said, one must go down before coming up. Yes. Yeah. You know, I was in the Bay Area. I lived there for six and a half years. And for five of those years, I was pretty much living in a black hole. But also, when I came out of that black hole, there was something different, something I had learned when I came out of that. And I was just happy to be here. There's no reason to look to go down a black hole. It just seems to find you. No, I don't advise anybody do that. But but if if it happens. It's good to have some idea of the teaching and how to work if it happens. I had good friends who came and extracted me. So that was good. Okay. So to end, it's a song by Lee Lazowick from... Um, one of his albums with the Lee Lazowick Project. Let's just enjoy the song and thank you so much for your attention. Okay, here is Philosophize.
gesture to loosen the mask. Do unto others what would be done to you. The greener of service to get us all through. Life can be easy, life can be tough. Yeah, we have choices, but is it enough to speak and find phrases to philosophize? Dig into the mud to get to the skies. Get to the sky.